This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media. Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we're going to talk about Facebook and Uber and making a TV show about both of those things. And also LinkedIn and podcasts. We're going to do that with two different interviews. First, my pal Mike Isaac currently with the New York Times, has written a book called Super Pumped about Uber. That is now a limited series Showtime show made by the folks who make billions. It's going to be showing up on your television screens in a couple days or two. Talk to Mike about taking a book and making it a TV show and how that almost never happens and how it happened for him and how he has turned his second book, which he has not written, into a TV show as well. Pretty extraordinary. We also talk about just sort of the state of Facebook slash meta itself which is, I think, reeling is a, is a fair word to describe what's happened to them in the last few weeks slash months, maybe years. Then when we're done with that conversation, we talk to Jesse Hempel, also an old pal, uh, who works at LinkedIn and is launching their new podcast network. I think that description is self-explanatory. We talk about it and talk about what working at LinkedIn slash Microsoft is like for a longtime journalist. A good conversation. I think you'll enjoy. They're both good. They're both free. And you're going to hear me talking to Mike Isaac right now. I know a lot of people who have written books because journalists love to write books, but I don't know anyone who has turned their best-selling book into a series on Showtime. Actually, correction, I do know one person. That person is Mike Isaac. I'm talking to him right now. Hi, Mike. Hey, hey, what's up? Mike is my former colleague, current friend. Let's see if he remains my friend by the end of this podcast. I predict Uh that he will. Anyway, congrats, Mike. You have a show. Thank you. I... I remember us talking years ago or no, I remember, I don't know if it was you or someone else who was saying, great job on getting it optioned. Don't worry. They're never going to make it into a TV show. Uh, these things optioned. Yeah. I don't think I said that because I was also the guy who did tell you not to write the book because <laughs> everyone writes books and none of them are successful. So I definitely would not have compounded my bad advice <laughs> with more bad advice, but you okay. do your, sh- your, your book super pumped is now a show called Super Pumped. It's on Showtime. It's made by the guys who did Billions, who do Billions, uh, Brian Koppelman, David Levine. Um, and it's premiering Sunday, days after this episode comes out. So congrats again. I'm just going to keep thanking you and congratulating you throughout the episode. But <laughs> I want to know how, how it all happened, um, because you have really threaded a needle here. Um, and mm. I want to talk about what the experience is like. Let's, let's do the how it happened really quickly. How did Brian Koppelman and David Levine get their hands on your show? Yeah, in your book and turn it into a show. Sure. Yeah. So wrote the book in 2018, got it come out in 2019. As we're getting it ready to come out, this is pre-pandemic, as you 
might remember um, when things were normal and we did like book tours and all that stuff. I'm basically frantically, you know, they don't teach you how to promote a book quite, uh, you know, for your first time. So I'm just like, all right, got to go out to everyone I know who does like podcasts. Podcasts actually was something I targeted a lot for promotion compared to like other medium, but that's a whole other thing. Get that uh, Kafka bump. In- including this podcast, yeah. that's right. And so Brian Koppelman, who I've known for years, r- really just on Twitter, but like as a friend and buddy, a fun person. And I had listened to his podcast, uh, The Moment. And so I'm like, all right, the Billions guys, they're amazing. He does this podcast. I have, maybe I can get lucky enough to have him like read the book and maybe he wants to talk to me on his show about it. And so I send it to him cold. I didn't even like, ping him or anything i was just like okay well here's here let's send it off into the ether and i get a call basically the the agent through the agents network they're like the guys are actually really interested in this book and like this is something that they think could be like a real show and i was like haha that's that's great yeah but whatever and so we actually start talking and the agents sort of do their thing and um the fun part was there was interest in Hollywood. Once the once the book was like done, I think people saw that it really lent itself visually to the screen. Yeah, and in case you haven't followed all of Mike's work or read the book, <laughs> it's it's the story of Uber, and it's a great Icarus story about really Travis Kalanick, yeah. um, a character who, if you're in tech, paid attention to tech, definitely did tech reporting, knew a lot about, but I think in the general world, Maybe you had a vague idea that yeah. Uber was an icky company in some way, but probably didn't even know that. And so this is a really a, a, a it's a story that that lots of people don't know, but has sort of a, a resonance and familiarity. I think a hundred percent. I mean, even listening to the stars, you know, George, Joe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, Uma Thurman, Kyle Chandler, like as they sort of talk about it on their promotional tour, I think everyone. Like you said, you know, 2017, 2018, Uber was kind of seen as this um, emblematic of what is bad or wrong with tech, right? You know, you have like the bro idea of bro culture, the idea of, um, you know, doing whatever it takes to get to the top. But no one, you know, Uber Uber is also sort of this thing that's omnipresent in our lives now. And no one knows how how it got there, how it got built and um and so I think the what I tried to do in the book, at least, is just sort of say this was not an easy path. And Travis Kalanick, you know, is not a one dimensional person. I think he's got um, a lot more depth to him. And there's there are reasons for him doing the things that he did. And that's what we get into in the show. So Koppelman and Levine, who have a deal with Showtime because they've made a hit show for them, yeah. say, we, we want to option this. And like you said at the beginning of this conversation, lots of people get their books optioned in which yeah. they get relatively small sums of money, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, and say, well, we'd like to hang on to the rights to make something here. And then usually that's as far as it goes. And I, I do know writers who've had their stuff optioned many times. The options sort of pass around. And it's it's not the worst thing in the world to get paid for for work that you've already done but nothing usually it, it doesn't ever become anything so how did it tip over from maybe this will be a show to we're making this it's going to be a show i yeah i mean that was the that exactly what you said was this sort of um i think my publisher and a few other folks were like that's great but keep your expectations low because again you know my first experience with hollywood options are very common and content companies sort of I imagine 
it's it caught what it costs them like 10 grand to go and like buy a few options or whatever and that's it's just not, throwing it's not a, a bunch deal. of chips down on the roulette yes, table like 100 and then most of them will never get made or whatever i really credit it with brian and david and beth schachter who's a another uh, one of the showrunners on the show like they there's a version of this where it could have languished and never gotten made or like kicked around inside of the studio forever but i think they uh, to their credit, they, they're pushing hard on billions. They're doing season after season every year. And they made time during the pandemic to open up another writer's room with a group of six or seven other people. And then the the showrunners to, and then I got to participate to sort of like talk through what this might look like. Can we create these character arcs? Can we sort of, is this a real show? But they were really convinced from the beginning, from reading the book that they wanted to do it. And I was I was surprised that that passion remain there throughout the whole time. I really credit them with making it happen. So you write a book. It's a successful book. You've, you've passed that gauntlet. Your book is optioned, another gauntlet. The book is turned into an actual show, another gauntlet you pass through. And then something else that is unusual about, about your case, you're actually hands-on involved. Mm. Very often they buy your thing and say thank you, and maybe your, your name is in the credits, and that's about it. But you were in that writer's room a lot. What, how, how did that come about, and what, what is being in the writer's room mean for someone like you, who, by the way, has a day job working for the New York Times? <laughs> right, don't tell them. No, I actually did it. But early in the morning before my job, if my bosses are listening. So again, another one of those things I, I had, you know, as a kid, I have a huge Pulp Fiction poster on my wall, wanted to be in the movie industry forever. Weirdly, you know, you and I talk movies whenever you see each other. It's just sort of an obsession. But uh, to get even a chance to be close to it was something really exciting and important to me. And so I sort of, when we were talking, we were negotiating, I was like, Look, if they're open to it, I would love to be a part of the the room in the capacity that I can be as a journalist and say, look, I did the research for this book. I know what happened. I've been writing about Silicon Valley for the better part, more than a decade, uh, and Uber for as long as it's been around, basically. Let me be a resource, essentially. And that is if it doesn't bother Brian and David uh, and other writers because there's there's also people who come in and probably are a huge pain in the ass or like just sort of like are harping, no, you can't do this, this, and this. And again, to their credit, they were like, no, we, we want you to come in. Like you can be actually helpful to us. We can ask you questions while we're, like they're doing the creative part. They're saying, these are what the characters look like. This is what the arc of the show could look like. These are like the high points in the book that we want to touch on. Mike, what is what does it mean for um, John Doerr to talk to Steve Jobs about the iPhone? Or what does it mean about what is Garrett Camp really like? Or what would Travis do in this situation? And this is something they would do for billions anyway. They go and reach. One hundred percent. They go out to reach, reach out to actual rich people and say, "How do you behave <laughs> in this circumstance? How do you pitch this thing? They what get if, all what does someone money. like you eat." where etc yes and in, in this case they're just going to you with those questions yeah i mean it was great because exactly right like uh, on their billions work they would all of the um i can't say who they are but like a lot of the big big people in finance in you know all across these industries who uh are relevant to their show they like coming in and i think talking to these people you know and and mm -hmm. Um, and Brian and David and Beth like getting the little details right, you know? I think they really, because it's like an Easter egg for people in the industry, you know? Like someone in finance might be like, ha I know, I know what that's about. So yeah, I, I basically kind of served as that that purpose for them, I think. 
billions is fictional. Sometimes real people appear as themselves, but yeah. the idea is they're 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 fictionalized characters. Sometimes they're based on someone. You can sort of guess at who they are. Or they're an amalgam. These obviously are real people in yeah. the Uber story that you've talked to. What's the tension of saying, all right, here's a scene that we're taking from Mike's book. Yeah. Mike Mike wasn't there, but he he's talked to multiple people. He's recreating it. Um, and we're just going to make a version of that scene versus we need to construct something that isn't in Mike's book and actually didn't happen, but we need it to narratively move this thing around. Sure. Um I, you know, I haven't read your book in a couple of years, but I don't remember there's any mention of like uh, Bill Gurley's wife sure. in, in yep. the book. But here she's a character and she spends a lot of time talking to Bill Gurley. And basically it's a way for him to explain what he's thinking and doing. Do you weigh in on that stuff or you go, oh, you guys, you guys know how to tell stories professionally. You just do whatever you want there. And I'm just come to me when you want to know what kind of shoes <laughs> Travis wears. Totally. No, I, I think a little bit of both. I think, well, A, I think both scenarios that you explain exist in the show. There's um, recreation of key moments that did happen. There's also, if you, it's very hard to tell a story visually if you stick entirely to a book in a compelling way. So I think the based on a true story does, uh, you know, mm -hmm. does work here and sort of to get things moving, you do have to sort of, or they have to sort of construct different ways of getting through moments like exposition and dialogue does not work the same way in a book that it does on a TV show. You need a character, unless you have like an omniscient narrator at all times explaining everything that's going on, which we have a little bit of, <laughs> which is a, another fun Easter egg. You need different ways of doing that. And so I think I would weigh in in the sense that I would be like, here's what this person is like. If you're gonna, you know, we did some, I did some outside research to the stuff that wasn't in the book and say, oh, I know X about this person. Um, and if you're going to go into that, th these are like the facts of that. And then you guys can decide uh, how you're going to leverage that character to be um, explanatory in this scene or whatever. You know, you, you mentioned the narrator. I can I can spoil it because it's already been in the trades. That's Quentin Tarantino is yeah. doing uh, some voiceover work for you there. There are other cameos, which I won't spoil and uh, that I've seen in the first few episodes. Do you weigh in on any of those? Like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool if we got <laughs> this person to play this character and that'd be a great wink and a nod. Or is that all Koppelman and Levine? Oh, man, it was it was mostly them saying here's who we're thinking and me saying oh my god that would be amazing <laughs> i mean like when they mentioned quentin i was like haha there's no way on earth this guy uh -huh. would come but quentin and brian are pretty good friends and um quentin is quentin's actually like dabbling in Techland with nft stuff right now yeah. so it's it's kind of i'm not exactly I'm scrunching sure. at my face and, and making a, a <laughs> i'm not sure some, how it all works but I expressions think there are overlaps and stuff so just the the people that they got is i mean Everyone who knows Brian says Brian knows everyone. And so I think they've done amazing jobs on casting. And then Showtime has really, really gone over the top in like making this a big, a big moment and stuff. So it's, we've yeah, been and they're really spending money on the soundtrack. There's lots yes. of expensive artists like Pearl Jam that you can't do unless yeah, the music you pay them awesome. a lot of money. You're a media nerd. You're a Hollywood nerd. You got a Pulp Fiction poster above your bed. Um, <laughs> But beyond that, like, what's what do you who's guiding you through this process? You have an agent whose job it is to protect yeah. you, but that's different than sort of telling you what to expect and how to interact with these people and when it makes sense for you to to say something and when you should just bite your tongue and go, I'm going to let the pros do it. Did, did anyone guide you through this process? I probably should have had a sort of Sherpa or mint. I probably should have called you up, honestly, and been yeah, like, yeah, I would have had great advice for you. Would... <laughs> Don't do this. I think. 
I I have largely okay. So I will course credit my agents, uh, Jason and Daniel, who have done a lot of amazing work. But yeah, you're right. Like it's they give uh, a certain type of guidance on this type of area, or like Jason knows a lot about uh, this is how Hollywood works in this respect or whatever. I recognize the limits of what I do and like where I can be most helpful, right? And like, uh, and at the end of the day, I'm a journalist, and I can sort of say this is all the research I've done and it it can be in service of what you guys are doing. And then I let the sort of creative folks do their thing. It is fascinating to sort of see it happen and maybe absorb some of it as it goes along. And, you know, like I I have learned a lot, I guess, through the process, but it really has been like me navigating and trying not to piss anyone off. And and it's gone remarkably well so far, at least. (laughs) So you've been learning on the job. You got to, you got to zoom into the writer's room. Yeah. I know you were on set at least once because you did that instead of hanging out with me in LA and I'm I'm not angry about it at all, but uh, I remember. (laughs) I mean, again, like so much of what goes on in Hollywood and on sets now is, is described in popular media, right? There's all kinds of TV shows and movies and books based about this is what goes on in Hollywood. But you were there. What surprised you? What didn't you know going in that you got to see firsthand? Well, you know what's really fascinating is post-COVID, how they're doing it, which I was blown away by on how the level of precautions, like I got tested each time I went on the set. There's like waiting periods. There were masks for everyone except for the actors when they're shooting. So like they actually have done pretty intense work to keep it safe the whole time. And I don't know if that's an industry standard or not, but at least with Paramount and Showtime and the production team were like super on top of it. I um, believe that is a standard. And and is, I think- well, I Is was that like to, everywhere? Yeah. And I, I was talking with someone who does, who's in that world and they said, they think that stuff sticks around, by the way, even post post-COVID. What like do you mean? Like the, the, this sort of these the level of restrictions and protocols and having a COVID wrangler or someone like that, that a lot of that will be sort of baked in because people are reluctant to take it away, either out of concern or liability. Mm. And someone told me that adds 20% to the cost of the show. Holy shit. I didn't yeah. realize that. Now, maybe, um, not, maybe that's not right, but that's. I mean, but like, it's not cheap. Like, they have, there's a whole infrastructure set up around it. Every time I went, they were up here in San Francisco shooting some. And I went up and um, said hi to a few folks, talked to the producers and same thing. It was like a traveling crew, sort of like diff- a whole set of onset medics and stuff. So th- they're, they're usually medics, but like it was a whole other thing. So it was, that was fascinating to me, honestly. And then just how long everything takes to do. Yeah. It's, it's not just whip out an iPhone and-, and, and, and <laughs> It is a lot scene. of shots. It's very impressive. I did talk to someone who I'm pretty sure was in your book, and I said, are you in the show? And they said, no, I'm friends with Brian and David, so they, they wrote me out. Uh, <laughs> did you have requests from people who you knew, who are sources, who are characters, who said, I'd like to be in the show in one way, or please make sure that I'm not, or mm. I'm concerned about my treatment? I'm assuming that Travis Kalnick didn't weigh in directly one way or other. You didn't talk to him directly for your book. Was he involved? Yeah. Did he lob any requests or demands in? Uh, yeah, so Travis did not participate in the book and didn't and made it clear they didn't want to, you know, I've had a standing sort of invite to talk to Travis for years sure. now, basically, and would happily talk to him uh, any day this week, actually, before the premiere. That would be wonderful. I think for him, at least, it's this sort of, I want to put this behind me. Um, <laughs> definitely probably don't want to be watching the show every week. I mean, as you know from watching the first 
few episodes, like media is a part of this uh, show. It's a part of the book. It's a part of how things actually played out. And so I had to make choices anyway in the book on who's going to be featured, who's not going to be featured. And that's always tricky, keeping Mm -hmm. people safe, keeping like the folks who talk safe or comfortable. I never, thankfully, I never had any requests saying, please don't put me in. Well, actually, I take that back. I had requests saying, please don't put me in there that I ignored because I was just like, sorry, you are too integral to the story. But thankfully, there weren't folks who I really wanted to put in but felt that I couldn't for safety reasons or whatever. I think I kept it. And there were no legal issues. I remember in the in the social network, there's lots and lots of real names and characters. And then that scene where Mark Zuckerberg uh, goes to the VC firm and his flip-flops and fl- flips them off. That's famously Sequoia Capital, but they're not referenced directly in the movie. I've always wondered why that didn't happen. Is there anyone who, for whatever reason... You guys felt, ah, we, we got to have a pseudonym here because we're going to get in trouble or we don't want to bump into this problem. I didn't know that about the, that was uh, the Sequoia moment. That's really funny. I think they they use most of the real life folks. There are a few characters that are amalgams mostly for storytelling purposes and for um, just sort of like combining a lot of different sort of threads into one person. Mm-hmm. Um that uh, this actress who plays a, a reporter character in the show is kind of like three or four different people um, and does it really well. And so I, d- I, there was not a moment where that I recall or that I was present for where we're like, Oh, we can't do this person because we're going to get destroyed or something. I think it was more like, how do we make this work in service of the story? And, um, and then there are also like some real people who show up in there too. Again, I won't spoil it, but, some real folks as well. There are some real folks in there. Um, <laughs> I won't spoil it either. So the show's going to air on Sunday. You go back to your corner. If you don't, you are <laughs> you are working on another book. This one is about a company formerly known as Facebook. Mm. Um, and you have now turned that one into a TV show, even though you haven't written a word. So explain <laughs> how that works. Hey, you don't know how much I've written yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's a. You uh, wrote a proposal. I, guess, <laughs> I have written words. I just, it's it is in process, but I think okay. the there there is treatment. There is actually writing there that I sold this on. I mean, you and I have been writing about Facebook for again years now, more than a decade. Um, back when we were at All Things D and Recode. It's a fascinating company. It's a very long arc of a company. I still think that the Facebook people know, most people know, is from Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher, right? I think that's the pop cultural version of Facebook yes. that people know. Yeah, It's one of the best movies ever made, and, and it's about Facebook, so... It's a great movie. No one has been able to make... Everyone also always wants to make the social network too, right? Like you mm-hmm. see a zillion pitches in Hollywood for any tech movie like that. So there's there's that aspect of it. But part of it is I just feel like I have a Facebook book in me. I've wanted to do it for a very long time. I feel like it's a part of my having written about the company for 12 years now. Um, I have a lot to say that I think there have been bits and pieces of out there, you know, and some really good books done already. Uh, some of my colleagues uh, wrote up with Sheer and Cecilia wrote a really good mm-hmm. book last year. Which will be a TV um, show. Which will also be a TV show. Um, so uh, I think there's just a lot there that I want to do before eventually doing something else. So you go out and you said, I'm going to write this book. And just to fill in the gaps, Brian Koppelman and David Levine are also turning that book into <laughs> a series 
on Showtime. They've announced it, announced it at their uh, at, at Paramount's Investor, Investor Day. Day. So they have bought that book unseen. Did you conceive, oh, I'm going to write the book and it'll be a show at the same time? Or how, how does that process work? Yeah, I, I it was... Great timing because, well, so first of all, Super Pumped is an anthology series, right? So each different uh, season. There's a book called Super Pumped. Right. Well, this is, <laughs> that's the other thing. The title, the, the, they're still working out title stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to be uh, still Super Pumped. But yeah. yes, the show in, in its uh, entirety is an anthology series. First season, Uber. Second series now going to be on, uh, second season going to be on Facebook. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the name stuff is going to be. They'll figure that out. Okay. I basically, you know, Brian, David, we talk a lot. I had mentioned to them that this was something I'd been thinking about with no expectation or anything. It was just like, like just sort of small I'm talk. thinking about writing this book. Not, yeah. not, I've not, I'm going to write this book. Well, it's, it's, it was like, this is a book I'm going to do, but I need to get off my ass and write the proposal because I, remember how awful it was to write the first book and I need to get into gear to write the next one. And so when I finally did that, basically we just sort of raised the possibility, Oh, could this be the second season? Is there enough there? And they were, they're really interested in Mark and Cheryl. Cheryl, uh, Cheryl is a undercovered, I think figure in a lot of different parts of it. Everyone's obsessed with Mark, but I think there's a lot for Cheryl too. And Basically, they knew they wanted to do another season. They, it, I was just like, look, this is something I'm working on. We worked really well together. I would love to work with you guys again if you're at all interested mm-hmm. in, but it, but had no expectations. And thankfully, it worked out. And Amy Israel had a showtime, super supportive. David Nevins, super supportive the whole time. So how is that going to affect your writing and reporting? You do the first book. Yeah. You want to make it cinematic because that's what all writers say and aspire <laughs> to. And you did a great job. And, you know, you have this one in a hundred chance that maybe something comes of it later on, but you're writing a book. Here, you're writing a book. You know it's going to be a TV show. Does that influence sort of how you're going to structure it, how you're thinking about making scenes, what kind of story you want to tell? I mean, just um, is it that much more pressure? Or is it like, oh, no, I already know. We're good. This is this is going to be on Showtime in four years, so I, I don't have to worry about whether that's going to happen. I definitely think... There's more pressure. Um, I mean, again, like before it was just sort of like, if it gets made, it gets made. So now it's like, oh God, it it will likely get made. So uh, the heat is on. I think the, I think I would probably write it the same, you know, to be honest, like going through this process has helped me on how I think about characters and structure even more in a different way, if that makes sense. Like before, you know, you can kind of do things with characters in books that might not work for the screen. But now I'm like, okay, this is these are the types of people we need in a book to a make the book compelling. B maybe it translates better to screen, but like just sort of structurally and character wise, and and exploring different types of people and those relationships, I think can inform how I write it more. And that you know, obviously, still sticking to reality like uh, you know that is what I, my job is and that is what my what I do but I do think that I think about it in a different way and in you know who are the most compelling figures and what are the most compelling story arcs and eventually how does that make its way to to the screen so it definitely definitely affected it 
like we've mentioned, you have a day job. You work at the New York Times, and your main job is to write about Facebook. Yep. Any complications about covering Facebook day to day when you are going to write a book about Facebook that is also going to be a TV show? Does the Times have any issues or concerns that you needed to address? Does Facebook bring this up when they're angry at you or maybe (laughs) not even angry? They're just concerned about sort of how you're thinking about all of this? No, I think a totally fair question. I think we we talked through that absolutely as this was going on. I think you know who's the who's the we, uh, me and and folks at the New York Times editors, uh-huh. folks who deal with special projects at the New York Times. It's it's you know what's most important to the Times and to their credit is like a you have a day job which I do and all all of the the book and TV stuff is done unfortunately on nights and weekends, but, uh, and, and early mornings, but I, but like they said, Hey, this is your main job, which I agree it is. And then B, um, just stick to what's real. And you know, that's what even divorced from any, please, please don't make anything up in the New York. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what they would tell me anyway, but, um, in, in take all the Hollywood part out of it, this is what the rules are anyway for for doing books as a New York Times reporter, and they've had these discussions many times with people. Um, I think the the way that it worked for me on Super Pumped was that I had basically done all this reporting on the company, and a lot of the book was retrospective, and then I basically stopped writing about Uber as the book was coming out or whatever. But I think even if I hadn't stopped writing about Uber, I think the the fact that it was covering this certain era of it didn't really didn't c- come into conflict with my day job. I think with Facebook, the current way of things playing out is probably going to be like the last section of the book. There's sort of like this is the direction things are going in and the history, the future is playing out as I'm writing it, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't think it um, the sort of past coverage and territory that's coming up is not going to. Uh, come into conflict with what I do daily, which is sort of write about what's going on with Facebook right now. Um, and again, I think the, the as far as the TV stuff is concerned, you know, I, I told them, look, my role is consultant and uh, steward of the facts. And then I check um, check myself at the door when the creative team goes and does whatever they want to do. And I think that uh, hopefully Facebook uh, uh, Meta, I guess now understands that and respects that. I've had conversations with them saying this is what my role is in that capacity, and um, the book is, you know, is something else basically. You know, when the social network was coming out, it was something they were quite concerned about. It sure. was a real issue for them, and they eventually decided to just sort of grin and bear it. Here, here they have other issues occupying them at the moment. Um, they've had a huge <laughs> swath of their their market value taken out. Real questions about how well their ad, uh, their money making machine, their ad targeting money making machine, you know, yep. unrivaled except by Google, has a serious problem now. As a New York Times beat reporter, what what's your assessment of just sort of the mood? Mm. We all had a chuckle there because Mark Zuckerberg called in all hands uh, a week or so ago and declared that uh, they have new principles and they should also all refer to themselves as meta mates. <laughs> It seemed to be a bit of a hey, ignore what just happened in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, We're, this is our this is our marching orders. How is that sort of effort to like, all right, let's all focus and bear down, going over at Facebook slash Meta? So yeah, the Meta mates thing was great. Uh, I I think it is, I think it's a tough time for them. I think they are in a period of transition. I had my 
uh, annual employee review meeting with my boss yesterday. And uh, we talked about what I would be thinking about as the year moves forward. And I think transition is a huge thing for Facebook right now, for Meta right now, right there. They're, and I think it's also a thing where we might look back on this in five years and say, is this a big turning point for the company, for the business, for which direction they're going in, you know, because there are a lot of question marks around their business. Their ad machine with the changes to iOS, with the upcoming changes to what Android might do, the the their targeting is not going to be the same as it used to be, right? And that's a big deal for a world going mobile where mobile ads are some something like 90% of their entire uh, business, something like that. I'm trying to remember their last earnings. Yeah, and they're still going to do, uh, I think, $110 billion. Correct. And it's, it's still going to be a fantastic money machine, but Correct. it won't be as good, at least in Correct. the near future. And like, look, the stock market works on um, potential future earnings, right? Like they, what they price in is, are this company's best days ahead of it or not anymore? And there are at least a lot of people right now betting that that might not be the case. Maybe right. So or, internally at Facebook, are people running? Are they like, yeah. well, we've 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 you know, a, there are people who will reference. Well, we had this with mobile and our IPO, that right? Was 2011, 2012. I assume that the major, you know, the overwhelming majority of the hundred was it forty thousand people? Forty thousand people. Sixty-eight, sixty-seven right, thousand keep, people. I'll now. just keep throwing out a number until I get it right. <laughs> uh, the majority of the sixty-eight to seventy thousand people who work there came in the last few years. They don't yes. know any of this history. Um, yes. So, how concerned are they? And how concerned about is Facebook about retaining them? Yes. Um, a lot of these folks have a lot of their net worth wrapped up in Facebook's share price, and now they have a lot less money. Yes. Um, a few things. One, the transition to mobile, they love making that analogy because it gives uh, the street and you know their peers sort of an idea of, oh, well, they navigated this. They can do this now. You know, like They can mm -hmm. do anything. Mobile was real. <laughs> Metaverse is not yet quite real, or and VR is still a niche hobbyist plaything. Right. right. The analogy was with mobile. We have to phones are here. We have to adapt to them. This overarching theory that they've started spreading for the last nine months of we're moving yes. to the metaverse, but that's goggles and headsets and a world that literally does not exist right now and may 100%. never exist. And if it does, it's five years or ten years or twenty years out. All the stuff of sort of. Mark and um, and Andrew Bosworth, a uh, um, CTO, and their their sort of dreams, and a lot of uh, techies' dreams. After reading um, what many people consider to be dystopian science fiction books, I think there's that is like the dilemma. People inside of Facebook, there's mixed feelings. There are old timers who are like, "We got this." True believers who drink the Kool Aid, who might like whenever Mark Zuckerberg posts. You see them in his comments saying like, yeah, we could do this, fuck yeah, blah, 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 which is, is, is what it is. And then um, there are people who I talk to who are like, I don't know if I signed up for this or like, I don't know if I want to be at a metaverse company. This thing that I like signed up for a year ago is very much not the same thing that I'm doing now or that like, or if you want to be on the like successful train up inside of the company, like the path up, you know, the division that's getting the most attention from the boss, uh, maybe maybe you don't want to go work over there. Maybe you don't want to go work on VR and AR and that stuff. You maybe you're an ads guy in on newsfeed who was like, hey, I liked my job. What is happening? You know, now it's so, just called feed. I know. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. They dropped the news. <laughs> that's right. There's no more feed. news. That bodes ill for us, honestly. <laughs> so I think there's real tension. I think Facebook is also 
the comp packages that I hear getting thrown around are insane. They are really trying to retain people and are just really do these big counter offers for when Google or Apple or Microsoft come calling for a lot of or Instacart or Instacart. Yeah. Right. right, Or now any of the web three crypto companies you've written about that. It's a big brain drain going there. And it's partly because people are interested in the tech and the opportunity and partly because it seems like you could make an enormous amount of money in a short amount of time. If you, if you hit the right lottery number. That's right. And I think the, I think we've gone through this, the web three stuff cannot, be underscored enough on how much it's affecting, I think, a lot of companies, especially Facebook, but a lot of big companies where folks are looking around, either they have the money FOMO or they're saying, this is a once in a generation transformational shift. Why am I going to be a, a mid-level PM inside of a giant company when I could Optimizing be getting on ads. the ground floor? 100%. Changing, yeah. If I change something a third of a percent, I've done my job for the year and like that's great. Or I can go out and if this startup blows up, uh, I can always come back, right? And get the same amount of stupid money for doing the same job I was doing before. So there's really no downside for a lot of these folks who feel like they can go out and be entrepreneurial. And and frankly, Facebook has sort of, you know, uh, celebrated this entrepreneurial spirit for people for a long time. So um, whether they believe that or not, I don't know. But like, I, th- I think they just sort of say, yeah, we support entrepreneurs. We get it. If you're going to go leave, da, da 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 But here's a dump truck full of money we're backing up to your house. Maybe you want to stay a bit longer. So it's mixed. It's definitely mixed internally. They're losing some folks. They're spending a lot to keep other folks. It's kind of all over the place. This could be a good book one day. Hey, man. Let's, I just need to go write it and stop talking to you. <laughs> Mike, Isaac, I love that you talk to me. I love that you're my pal. I love your success. Um, I'm a big Schadenfreude guy, but uh, uh, it's also great to celebrate good people um, having good things happen to them for good Thanks, reasons. Buddy. So congrats. Thank um, you. This is Mike Isaac, and this is Peter Kafka saying, I like Mike Isaac. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks again to Mike. In a minute, we're going to hear from Jesse Hempel at LinkedIn. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. I'm talking to my pal Jesse Hempel, who I would normally describe as veteran journalist. Used to be at Wired and Fortune. That sounds derogatory. I'm going to say you as a, I'm going to describe you as a podcasting expert, which is why I'm having you on. You work at LinkedIn the social network for people who have jobs or would like to get new jobs. Um, and you're making podcasts for them. Welcome, Jesse. Uh, thank you for having me. And mostly thank you for calling me a podcast expert. I've never been called that before. And I swear I'm going to take that and I'm going to put that in my title on LinkedIn. Put, make a business is... card. Do we do business cards anymore? 
You know, I haven't had a business card since 2017 when I was still at Condé Nast, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be retro. Like, your kids are going to have business cards. Yeah. You know, they're really into American Psycho for some reason. Not that they've seen it, but they see clips from it, and there's a whole business card scene that my sons are literally baffled by. They don't understand what they're talking about looking at. What's um, old is new again. There's a lot of things we have to explain about that that movie. You were on this show a couple years ago. You were talking about your Hello Monday podcast, which is excellent. It's like a version of this podcast, but much better. And now you have Please. new podcasting news. You are launching a drum roll. The LinkedIn Podcast Network. So LinkedIn is getting into deeper into the podcast game. And here's the thing, Peter. I was on the show several years ago when we were very new to market with Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us, which is something I say every Monday morning, so I've got it memorized. And that show was so fun to create. But LinkedIn isn't in the business of creating a podcast that wouldn't make a lot of sense. LinkedIn is in the business of figuring out how to try to empower creators to be really successful on our platform. And we always kind of knew that we wanted to do something bigger with podcasts, and we've been trying to figure out what. And so what is launching this week, the LinkedIn Podcast Network, is the culmination of our best efforts and thoughts and hopefully the pilot of something that will grow to be much bigger. Okay. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what a podcast network is, but just explain it. This is There's going to be stuff that you make and maybe other people at LinkedIn make, but I assume other people outside of LinkedIn are making. And I just want to qualify that to say, like, maybe you know what a podcast network is, but it is so early in podcasting, and yes, it feels late, but it's really, really early that everybody has their own definition. And what anybody will do for you seems to differ depending on who you talk to. But to be really simple here, LinkedIn sees an opportunity that we don't think is filled in figuring out how to let listeners talk back to their hosts and talk to each other. LinkedIn is not trying to compete with, uh, say, Apple or Spotify. We're not a platform. If you are a LinkedIn Podcast Network podcast, what that means is I can find you anywhere on any platform for free. You don't pay for it. But LinkedIn will supply the ads. And LinkedIn has partnered with you and will assign you a dedicated community manager who will help you build a robust conversation and community on LinkedIn. And of course, LinkedIn will also help you with the basic production. And we're not in the process of producing your podcast for you, but we have a team of people and a little bit of money to make sure that you're best positioned to be successful with your show. So you're not helping with production, you're helping with sales and distribution. We're helping with sales and distribution. We are um, for our pilot. So the way that our pilot works, there are 12 shows. Four of those shows are LinkedIn news shows. They're shows that we produce internally. You know, I'm sure you listen to Hello Monday every week or every month or, you know, every six months or so. We're going to have three more shows. And then in addition to that, we're starting with eight partner shows. And we're calling these shows LinkedIn Presents Shows. Now, the goal over time here, Peter, is that we grow the partner shows. We probably won't ever grow our original content that much. It's not what we aim to do. Our original content really exists so that we can learn how to make other people successful. We dog food the stuff, essentially. So the eight shows, it's different for every show. They're all shows where we've put up a little money to help the host to get the show produced. Not a heck of a lot, but enough. We cover the cost of what we believe you would make in advertising if you sold the show through for the entire 10-week pilot. We give you this creator manager, and we're off to the races. And the hope is that if you check in on us next fall, we will have tripled or quadrupled the number of LinkedIn Present shows that will be ongoing. I mean, that over time, we're going to help podcasters 
figure out how to do okay by their podcast. Jesse, I don't want you to take this the wrong way because it's going to be a compliment. But when I met you, you were a writer, did great feature stuff. And then we talked when you were becoming an excellent podcaster. And now you kind of sound like a like a person is good at doing business or at least doing presentations. <laughs> Have you been fully swallowed up into into corporate tech land? Yeah, but, and by the way, I should spell out that LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft. Are, are you now fully comfortable being part of, of thought leadership within a, a giant Borg of, of tech and business? I love that you asked that question, Peter, because yes, we have known each other long enough that when I was first writing my magazine stories, I remember going to you for advice and more than that, a pat on the back when I said difficult things about people who got angry at me. The short answer is that um, I had children and children will definitely reframe your expectations around, um, you know, the life that you want to lead. And you start thinking about college ahead. You know, we've got 15 years, but I'm thinking about it. But that's only part of the answer. I mean, I have to tell you, Designing LinkedIn Podcast Network has enabled me to put a business development hat on. And that has been amazing. I love it. And it speaks to what is a very cool thing about LinkedIn, which is that you show up thinking you're going to do one thing. In my case, I actually thought that I was going to be writing a weekly column and maybe making a podcast. And three years later, I continue to make that podcast. It has grown, has a robust audience, um, and now spend about 75% of my day being the, uh, I don't know, we're trying this on for title. What do you think about this? The the um, head of content for the LinkedIn podcast. Fantastic. Network. Yeah, it's okay, right? Yeah, or chief um, content officer is a good one, too. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Do you think chief content officer makes me seem a little bit more corporate than head of content, though? You go either way. Ch- executive chairman, content content well, vertical. That's not good. Don't do that one. Well, here's the thing. Um, I'll, I'll back off the business de- development piece as this pilot gets launched yeah. and goes, hopefully. But but like the big hope here is actually, and this this is what has been so fun. In everything that I have done so far, it's been focused on me and how to make me successful. Like Hello Monday is still like brand Jesse Hempel. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm middle-aged. Maybe it's because I'm tired of my own thoughts. Like the gift here is that um, we can take what we figured out about Hello Monday to make lots of important voices more successful than I ever was. And that that is what lights me up. So I saw you last fall at a fancy Manhattan media schmooze thing. This was in that window between Delta and Omicron when you could do these things. Like the one week of Hollywood, uh, the one week of holiday parties we had. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then it all went away. And you were boasting to me about how well your podcast was doing. Do you want to, can you, can you share that number again? It was an off the record conversation. Of course I can't share the number specifically. So I figured that and I won't betray our confidence, but I said, really, you guys making that much money from a single podcast? That seems like a lot. And then you said, well, actually what's happening is we're attaching the podcast to other things we sell. And that sounded familiar to me because that's how digital media was packaged for a long time in the early days, back when when Recode was all things D and was part of the Wall Street Journal. A lot of our ad sales came through people who wanted to buy a print ad in the Wall Street Journal, and they would get bundled into a digital thing as well or part of the conference. Do you think that's how LinkedIn is going to sell podcast ads for a while, that it's part of a larger buy? Or do you think eventually it becomes its own thing? It's not an either or question. It's a yes and question. Um, It's absolutely how we're going to sell podcasts in the beginning, in part because the whole point of the pilot is to prove that we should be in this business in the first place. But we have a high degree of confidence we should. And that really is based on what creators 
need, Peter. First of all, I want to back up and say that like, one of the things that I personally am most excited about, now LinkedIn is most excited about, is leveling the playing field a little bit for important voices. I think we're living in a moment where I personally am looking ahead and thinking, is all the money and are all the resources and is all the attention going to go to a small group of people who will do very well by this, possibly coming out of traditional publishers? Or are we really in a moment where all business professionals can launch a podcast, support it enough, and have it contribute to the business conversation and the sort of career image they're trying to build? And that, to me, is the path that I want to see move forward. It's a path where there's more opportunity for more people. It's very in line with how LinkedIn thinks about what it means to build your reputation as a career professional, right? LinkedIn is a generally very positive place. People are, are are promoting themselves and their ideas, and they're generally not attacking other people, and they tend to steer clear of controversy. But we're in a world where anyone who's a platform or distributor needs to think about what they're distributing. We have a high-profile thing with Joe Rogan and Spotify going on, uh, and Microsoft, which has generally been out of the sort of anti-tech backlash fray for some period is getting closer whether they want to or not. How do you imagine, because inevitably something's going to come up where someone puts out something on a podcast that either your corporate owners find distasteful or upsetting or, or wrong, or someone else has a problem with, how are you going to negotiate that? You know, we're definitely thinking about that. And um, I would say beyond that, that the Joe Rogan conversation has to be critical for anybody working in social software right now. It has to force everyone to have a reckoning and get clear around how you're going to talk about and handle these things inside. I hope that we grow to a point where that conversation will actually be something that happens around the LinkedIn platform someday. And I hope that by the time we get there, people will continue to see that so far, at least, because we've taken a really pretty strong approach to trust and safety on the platform. And because we've been clear right from the start that like this is attached to real identity, that we don't tolerate hate speech, that mm -hmm. we have like a we have a trust team that is so committed to nurturing healthy conversation that we actually won't have a lot of those problems on the platform. And maybe that's naive, Peter, but I, I so far it has proven very true. Jesse Hempel, I appreciate your candor, and I love your work, and I love that I know you. Um, I look forward to listening to all 12 of your shows. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jesse. Thanks again to Mike and Jelani and Travis for producing and editing the show. Our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free for $0.00. And, zero cents. and thanks to you guys for listening and telling other folks about the show pitching me ideas on the show. I listen to those pitches. I read the pitches. Thank you. And this is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.